0: Welcome back, everybody. This is going to be episode two of two on the biblical foundations of Mary. I hope you enjoy. God bless. So now let's move to uh, the Gospel of John. So right when the Gospel of John starts, it says, In the beginning... So right there it's already taking back taking us back to Genesis, because Genesis Genesis says in the beginning. So in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So the word is Jesus and he's saying right here that the word is God. And Jesus is the word and Jesus is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was nothing, was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So there we already see he's proclaiming Jesus's divinity and that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. According to, uh, John chapter one, verse 14. And that is a reference back again to what we read in Luke that God wanted to dwell amongst his people and he finally found a worthy, perfect vessel in Mary to, in order to dwell amongst his people in Jesus. So now let's move to the connection of this very first part of John where it leads us through um, the word became flesh and then the testimony of John the Baptist and then the lamb of God, the first disciples of Jesus, Jesus calls Philip and Nathaniel, and the wedding at Cana. So throughout that entire time, we already see that at the very beginning, it says in the beginning. So it's taking us back to Genesis. And then we're going to see that when, uh, after John the Baptist proclaims that Jesus is the lamb of God, um, It goes into the sequence of the next day, and then the next day, and the next day, and then the third day was a wedding at Cana. So this is significant already. So we already see at the beginning in Genesis, the beginning of creation, there was, it was a wedding banquet. God wanted to wed himself to his people. And there was a man and a woman. And in both instances in the book of Genesis, there's the falling because of the serpent. So there's the Adam, and then there's Eve, and then a serpent. And then right here in the middle, we're going to see right in John that there's a wedding banquet and there's a woman, uh, Mary, and the new Adam, Jesus. And then in Revelation, Uh, we're going to see the wedding banquet of the Lamb of God, and that's Jesus. And then there's also going to be a woman there, Mary, and there's also the serpent. So we'll just keep, we'll keep that in mind for now, but let's go through the connection. So in Genesis chapter one, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse three, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then in verse 11, it says, and God said, let the earth put forth vegetation. And in verse 20, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. And in verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. So now we move to John chapter one and it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse three says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse five, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse nine, the true light that enlightens every man was coming to the world. So we already see a direct connection uh, between Genesis and John chapter one. But now in John chapter one, it's actually the recreation of the universe that is brought about by Jesus Christ. So in verses 18 through 28, We'll read the first day. That's what represents the first day. And then at verse 29, it says, then the next day. So now we move into the second day and verses uh, 19 through 34. And then it says uh, the next day um, in verse 35. So then we move into the third day, chapter or verse 35 through 42. And then it says, uh, one one last time, and then the next day. So then we move into the fourth day for verses 43 through 51. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, uh, it doesn't say the next day, it says then on the third day. So now we had four days, and then it says on the third day. So now you have a total of seven days. So then on the seventh day, there was... Uh, A marriage took place at Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now Jesus, too, was invited to the marriage, and also his disciples. And the wine having run short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, What is that to me and to you, woman, my hour has not yet come? His mother said to the attendants, Do whatever he tells you. The first of his signs, Jesus worked at Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, a ton of significance right here. Okay. So we see that the seventh day so it's referring back to Genesis. Well, what was that Genesis? The creation of man, right? So the Adam and Eve were born without sin and then they fell. And then here Jesus without, is without sin and we see Mary here as the new Eve when on the seventh day at this wedding banquet where you only know that Mary, Jesus and the disciples are there. But who are the two prominent figures? Mary, the woman, and Jesus. Jesus looks at Mary and calls her woman. And that is so significant because he is directly referring back to the reference of Genesis 3.15 of Mary, uh, of the woman, and then Jeremiah 31.22 of Mary compassing the man. So now it's this reversal of a fall at the beginning that people that were without sin, Adam and Eve, fell. And now these two... Uh, in Jesus and in Mary, two people, a man and a woman, without are without sin. And Jesus himself confirms and affirms Mary as this woman that was promised in Genesis 3.15 that would put enmity between the serpent and this woman, and the serpent and her offspring, Jesus. So two people here, and Jesus says woman. So that is so significant. And then, And then also, when he says woman... Uh, what does that have to do with you and with me? He is saying specifically that Mary's will is directly connected with uh, Jesus's will. And so, um, and we see here that this is the very first miracle that Jesus performs. And what is Mary's, this is perfect. This is the perfect example of Mary interceding for us because she never puts her son in a predicament of like this, this, request that is against his will. She is is so perfectly connected to his will. She says, they have no wine. We're at the beginning in Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve, they had everything that they needed, but then they tried to take it for themselves apart from God. Whereas Mary, she's seeing this, what these people need. And she tells her son, her divine son, Jesus, they have no wine. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with you and with me? My hour has not yet come, which is significant uh, part because uh, it's connecting uh, Jesus on the cross and the fulfillment of the Passover uh, with the Last Supper. But it's also significant because then he still performs the miracle and he provides the good wine, which is which is also a foreshadowing of Jesus's covenant, which is given in bread and in wine. uh, And he pours out his body and his blood for humanity, the new covenant of Jesus's body and blood. Um, And then what is, this is the very last thing that Mary says in scripture, do whatever he tells you. Mary is always pointing to her son. She's always telling us to go closer to him, to do, to have to do whatever Jesus tells us. And this is perfectly um, captured in Revelation. And we're going to go into more details later. But in Revelation, in chapter 12, verse 17, in Revelation, it says that the serpent went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and bear, bear testimony to Jesus. So here, and we're, later we're going to see, and we're going to dive into this more, but we see there that Mary is the mother of all those who keep the commandments of God. Um, and that, that is us, the people that testify to Jesus, all Christians, not just Catholics, all Christians. If you are Christian, you bear testimony to God and bear testimony to the name of Jesus. And therefore you're, you are a direct descendant of Mary because God is wants to fulfill this perfect grace without sin, holy and unblemished that has been fulfilled in Mary. So there from the beginning of John and the wedding of Cana, we see that Mary is given the title of the new Eve. So she was born without sin. So she was, uh, she has the Immaculate Conception and she also is the mother of God. Um, and then I want to, I'll, I'm going to come back to Revelation in a minute, but I also want to jump to John uh, chapter 19, verse 25 through 27. And this is when Jesus is on the cross. This is literally one of the last things he says before he dies. So he's been through scourging. His body is in complete um, shock. He's di- he completely dying. His heart is being expanded. His body is just torn to bits. And he is crucified. And most people died from asphyxiation on the cross because their lungs would be expanded and their lungs would be filled up with fluid. So he is in excruciating pain, pain that we'll never be able to feel. And... This is the, one of the last things he says. So in chapter, verse, uh, or in chapter 19, verse 25 through 27, it says, Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and, the Mar- and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. So a few things. It says the disciple whom he loved. So tradition tells us that that was the disciple of John. but also tradition tells us that it was put in there of the disciple of whom he loved is because we are the disciple of whom he, we love, whom He loved. And we all want to partake in that one sacrifice of Jesus. So we are called to be there at the foot of the cross and who else was there, Mary, We're sta- we should be standing there with Mary Jesus's mother. And one of the last things Jesus says as he's about to die, literally the next, right after that, it says that, um, knowing that all was finished said to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I thirst a bowl of vinegar stood there. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar on his up and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished and bowed his head and di- head and gave up his spirit. So he literally gives the disciple his mother. And the next thing he says is, I thirst and it is finished. And that is significant too because it's, it's finished or it is consummated is referring to the fourth cup of the last supper, consummating, uh, that fourth cup of the, his blood of the new covenant. So it's the Eucharist and the Mass connected. Anyways, but back up to, um, that. So behold, woman, behold your son and, To the disciple, behold your mother. And so, this is also significant because this shows that Mary did not have other children, because this would have been outrageous in a Jewish uh, first century Judaism for somebody to give their mother to somebody else other than a family member, a direct family member. So, we know that she didn't have any other children. So, he gives her under the care of one of his disciples. And as Mary stood there watching her son, she never interrupted. You notice in scripture, she's never interrupted her son. The only time that she's, uh, asked him for anything was they've ran out of wine. And then he performs his first miracle and they give them, he gives them the good wine from Mary's intercession. Then he starts his ministry from Mary asking for him. Her, her will, her, uh, she is completely caught up to the will of God that she is part of salvation history. So and uh, and her standing at the cross, she never interrupts. She is completely humble, and she's watching her son be scourged and crucified and walks with him. and so she is the perfect example of a Christian because she was there at the beginning. She bore and gave birth to jesus to the world and then she provided life and mercy through uh jesus going being birthed through her and then walked with him his entire life from his entire life even before his ministry she was a human that taught her son scripture taught taught him how to be a man with her and joseph and then um and then also after when we go back to luke in chapter 2 verse 35 so this is after the birth of jesus and then the the, the magi come and worship jesus as a baby and mary's hands and then jesus is named and he is given and presented to the in the temple so when they're in the temple uh they encounter a man named simeon and so uh and this is what it says And inspired by the Spirit, he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory for thy people Israel. So Jesus is the king of the Jewish people and king of the world here, right? He is the light of the revelation to the Gentiles as well. The entire world would come to worship him. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is set for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is spoken against. So there he's saying that there, he is a sign of contradiction. So the cross is the sign of contradiction, right? And then it says in verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So at the cross, back in John 19, when Jesus is uh, scourged and then he's crucified and then he's pierced, her soul is pierced as well because her and her son are so connected, like we said earlier. Jesus' blood, that is Mary's blood running through Jesus' veins. And so a sword will pierce through your own soul, he says to Mary, and that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So here we see that uh, Jesus and Mary would together suffer so that the many would be saved, according to Luke 2.35. And that is fulfilled in Jesus um, being crucified right there. So Mary is the perfect disciple. And there we see that Mary is the mother of us as well. So now let's flip back. Now that we know that we've set the tone that Mary is the Ark of the Covenant, and also she is given to us to be our mother uh, that Jesus gave us. So now let's move to Revelation. If you start at the end of chapter 11 in Revelation, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. So there he's saying that the Ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Any first century Jew would have been like going crazy because they've lost the, the Ark and now they're finally going to see it. John is up at, caught up in heaven and he sees in the spirit that there is the Ark. But what does he see? Does he see it, the Ark made of gold and all these things of the Ark of the Old Covenant? No, what he sees is the Ark in chapter 12. And it says, And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So if we first back up to chapter 11, verse 19 in Revelation, where it says that there were flashes of lightning, loud noises, and peals of thunder, and an earthquake and heavy hail. This is a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, where David experienced an extraordinary manifestation of the power of the Old Testament ark. Or perhaps uh, this is referenced back to uh, chapter 5 and 6 in 1 Samuel, where both the Philistines and the Israelites experienced dramatic displays of the glory of God emanating uh, out through the ark, where there was uh, flashes of lightning, loud noises, peals of thunder, and earthquake. So, and then this is... A reference to her bodily assumption because in chapter 12 it says that a woman clothed with the sun and we already know that the woman is connected to the ark right and we saw it back in luke that she is presented by luke as the ark of the new covenant with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars so here they say under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars so they point out that she has feet and a head so she has these body parts in heaven and this is completely unique because in other places of scripture, we see that there's spirits or souls in heaven, but not bodies. So uh, in Revelation 6, 9, it says, Souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. In Hebrews twelve twenty three it says, The spirits of the just men made perfect. So there's references of um, people's spirits or souls being in heaven and interceding for people. But this is the only time where we see a human being and it's a woman. And who is this woman? Well, this woman is Mary. So we go back to Revelation chapter 12. And after uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 2, it goes on to talk about how there's a red dragon. So then it's a reference back to the serpent that, was, uh, that led to the fall of Adam and Eve, right? So his, um, and then in chapter, or uh, verse 4, it goes on to say, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bury child, <clears throat> that he might devour her child when she brought it forth. She brought forth a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she was a she has a place prepared by God. So here we see that this woman is going to give birth to a child who is going to rule all the nations. Well, who is that? only Jesus, right and then <clears throat> so everybody. Everybody knows that the this child who's going to rule the nations is Jesus, and then this red dragon is Satan. So everybody takes those two literal, right? So then it has to be that this woman who is connected to the Ark, she is the Ark of the Covenant, this woman, clothed with the sun, with the moon on her feet, and the crown of 12 stars in her head, has to be Mary. Because who else gave birth to Jesus Only Mary did, and who else went to uh, Egypt to be protected from the evil one? And that was Mary, right? So, uh, if we went back to Matthew chapter two, verse thirteen through twenty-three, Mary escaped to Egypt with Jesus. And right here in Revelation, it says this woman uh, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. So there, this the Satan the uh, the dragon is trying to devour this child and this this woman but guess what just as genesis 3:15 says god is going to put enmity between you the serpent and the woman just as here and between you the serpent and Uh, this woman's offspring, Jesus, and all Christians. So, and a lot of people will try to fit in that it's the fulfillment of Israel or it's the church. And actually, the Catholic Church, this is what's so beautiful about Catholic theology. It's never an either or, it's a both and. So we can see that it's uh, the church in glory or Israel in glory, but it had, like, out of those three, it is 100% has to be Mary. And the other ones are, that's great, that's beautiful, but... For sure, it's Mary. Because as we see back in um, Genesis 3, in Genesis, there is Adam and Eve and the serpent. And then now here is the woman and this child caught up to God and the serpent. So Jesus is for sure the child who's going to rule the nations. And there's the red dragon who is Satan, both taken literal, and this woman. Uh, who gives birth to that that child who is going to be ruling all the nations, and that is Mary. So, And then also, uh, her being clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet uh, reflects the great beauty of the perfect royal spouse in the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 10, where it says, Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, and the brilliant uh, golden robes of the queen in Psalm uh, 45, verse 9, and verse 13. So here we see Mary as that perfect image of Israel, and the church, holy and without blemish, and perfectly united to the will of God. So just to recap all of this and make it even more abundantly clear, let's actually look at Genesis and the Gospel of John in Revelation. So in Genesis 2, verse two uh, two and three says Eve is referred Eve is referred to as woman ten times before she is named Eve. Jesus calls Mary woman in John 24 and again from the cross in John nineteen twenty six. And then she is called woman eight times in Revelation 12. So Eve was called woman 10 times in Genesis, and Mary is called uh, woman 10. Ten times, twice by her son Jesus, and eight more times in Revelation, and then in Genesis three twenty, it says the woman is then specifically named Eve because she is mother of the living, and that all of humanity are her seed. And then in Revelation uh, chapter twelve verse seventeen, and in John nineteen twenty six, Mary is the mother of all who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus, her offspring. And Genesis three, uh, Genesis chapter three and twelve through thirteen. Eve reaches out in disobedience to the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and brings death to herself and all of her children. Where in contrast with Mary, Mary reaches out in faith to the new covenant cross or to the tree bringing life to chil- to herself and all of her children. And that is a reference to 1 Peter 2:24, Luke chapter 2 verse 34 through 35, John chapter 19:26 and Revelation 12:17. And in Genesis three sixteen through 17 By their disobedience, Adam and Eve each contribute to the death of their progeny and, all, and are each rebuked by God, whereas opposed to Jesus and Mary are each prophesied to obey God and suffer so that their progeny would have eternal life in God. And then in, uh, Gen- back to Genesis, Eve, the woman, is overcome by the dragon, the serpent, as he is called, and brings about death to her children, whereas opposed to Mary, the woman, is pursued by the dragon, that ancient serpent referenced back to Genesis 3 in Revelation, but he cannot overtake her. As a result, she is depicted as giving birth to all Christians in Revelation twelve seventeen. So, yeah, hopefully that gets <laughs> the message across that Mary is your mom if you bear testimony to Jesus she is your mother because Jesus himself by his own merits gave you her his mother who is perfect and undefiled by the merits of her son Jesus now i do want to move to uh Matthew just from a holistic view of the gospel of Matthew so the focus in the gospel of Matthew is the kingdom the son of david so we see Jesus restoring the Davidic kingdom. So the Davidic kingdom had a royal steward in Isaiah 22, 22 And that is uh, Jesus appoints Peter to that role in Matthew 16, 18 as the first pope. And so he is the royal steward, uh, steward of the Davidic kingdom, and the Davidic kingdom had twelve officers over the house of Israel in First Kings uh, chapter four, verse seven through nine, and each one of them were named. And Jesus appointed twelve officers in uh, Matthew chapter ten, verse one, and he each he named each one of them in Matthew chapter ten, verse two through four. And he sent them out to the house of Israel in uh, Matthew 10, 6. And later he promises them thrones, Matthew 19 through 18, just as the Davidic princes sat on thrones in Psalm 122, verse 5. So there we see that he's setting up a Davidic kingdom, right? So that is the fulfillment of of Israel in the Catholic church because it's an apostolic church Founded by Jesus, and uh, it's uh, founded on the apostles who sit on thrones and judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Right, so it follows that there is a queen mother. Jesus is king, so there is the queen mother who would be Mary. Right, and this is not uh, just something that we would like to believe in the in the, Jew- in the Jewish kingdom. We're going to see back in First Kings chapter two that the son of David, Solomon, the king had a queen mother. So the story goes like this, Solomon just, just been made king in the place of his father, David. Before Solomon was enthroned, the heir apparent was his older brother, uh, Adonijah. Adonijah had actually plotted his own inauguration as king, but called it off with it when his father, David, intervened and put Solomon on the throne immediately. Adonijah had never, had not given up on his hopes of being king. He was in fact plotting a coup At this very moment, Abishag, the the Shunammite, was a key pawn in the strategy of his coup. As distasteful as it sounds to us today, in ancient times, a new king would often marry all the younger wives of the previous king. Possession of the royal women was a key sign and mark of political legitimacy. Abishag was recognized as King David's youngest and most recent wife. So Adonijah hoped to acquire her and thus increase the political and capital His political capital to appear more legitimate than Solomon. Then, coordinating his supporters with the army, the priesthood, and the bureaucracy, he hoped to become king and put Solomon, his rival, to death. However, Adonijah didn't want to risk asking Solomon directly for Abishag, so he attempted a workaround. So what does he do? He goes through the queen mother. In ancient Israel, kings often had several wives, and so it was the king's mother who had reigned as queen. This is so different from modern culture where the queen mother, for example, in England, plays a relatively insignificant role. In antiquity, the queen mother was an extremely influential person in the kingdom. She had direct access to the king. Uh, Court protocol demanded that she receive whatever she requested from the king. If someone could gain an audience with the queen mother, she was often able to cut through all the red tape and intervene directly with the king in order to get something done. So Adonijah, he approached Bathsheba, the queen mother to ask her to intercede for him before the king confident that what she asks of the king will not be refused so and we even see that the queen will be granted because uh pray ask king solomon he says he'll not refuse you and then he says i have one small request the uh the queen mother says i have one small request do not refuse me And then he says, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. The king rose and the king rose to greet her and actually bowed down to her. The queen mother was the only person in the kingdom whom the king himself venerated. And he sat on his throne and had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. So this was a position of dignity and authority for the queen to sit on the right of the the right hand of the king. The one who sat on the right hand of the king was recognized as sharing the king's status or power. So Solomon is the son of David, a well-known type of Christ. Bathsheba is the type of Mary then. So we see from that Davidic kingdom, the queen mother, there was three aspects in her role. Intercession, she would be the direct access uh, to the king. Veneration, people would venerate her and so would the king. And coronation, she was crowned. And we saw that Mary was crowned in Revelation, right? And so, uh, and also Psalm 45, six through nine, it says, God, your God has anointed you with all the oil of gladness above your fellows. At your right hand stands the queen and gold of Ophir. So this is actually referenced again in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter one, verse eight through nine. So we see here that it's fulfillment of, that there, that Jesus, because Jesus fulfilled all of these things, if it is fitting that Mary is uh, the fulfillment of all these things as well, right? And then also from her assumption, there's two uh, other things that I wanted to reference, even outside of scripture, From um, that there's archaeology that it actually reveals that there's two tombs of Mary that still exist today, one in Jerusalem and then one in Ephesus. And guess what? There's no body in either tomb the Christian belief in the communion of saints and the sanctity of the body in a radical contrast to the Gnostic disdain for the flesh. So in early uh, Christianity, obviously Jesus gave eternal worth to bodies, right? Because we believe as Christians that in the second coming, our bodies will be reunited with our souls. But as we saw, Mary, her body and soul out of Jesus's merits, and she was perfected by his grace and love that she's already uh she's already um reflected that promise for all of us Christians that their body and soul will be together. So the Gnostics in the early uh in early Christianity they would actually Um, destroy the bodies out of distaste for Christians. So that led for early Christians to seek out the greatest uh, fervor for relics from the bodies of great saints. So cities and later religious orders would fight over the bodies and bones of the great great saints. This is one reason why we have so many relics of the apostles of the first century and so many of the greatest saints and martyrs in history. But guess what? There's no single relic of Mary's body. And in St. Gregory of Tours and his Eight Books of the Miracles that was written in 590, he says this, The course of this life, having been completed by Blessed Mary... When now she would be called from the world, all the apostles came together from their various regions to to her house. And when they had heard that she was about to be taken from the world, they kept a watch together with her. And behold, the Lord Jesus came with his angels, and taking her soul, he gave it over to the the angel Michael and withdrew. At daybreak, however, the apostles took up her body on a bier and placed it in a tomb, and they guarded it, expecting the Lord to come. And behold, again the Lord stood by them, and the holy body having been received, he commanded that it be taken in a cloud into paradise, where now rejoined to the soul Mary rejoices with the Lord's chosen ones and is in the enjoyment of the good of an eternity that will never end. So there we see so many different uh fulfillments of mary due to jesus jesus fulfills all these things and so therefore it's fitting that mary is the ark of the new covenant she is the new eve she is the queen mother of the davidic kingdom which all supports the four Marian dogmas she is the mother of god her divine motherhood she was immaculately conceived without sin she was a perpetual virgin and she her body and soul were assumed into heaven and just uh, a last touch on her assumption was that there is still a uh, debate, and it's the, the, the church isn't going to have a definitive teaching on it. But a lot of people said that she fell asleep, like she went into dormition, or that she died and then was assumed into heaven. Some people, most people say that she died because she was so closely united with her son that because of Jesus, he actually died. Mary actually died as well. She she felt death, and but was. Um, assumed into heaven, her body and soul, and so, and that's a, and now I want to go into some other considerations or arguments against uh, these doctrines or dogmas or beliefs about Mary. So, one of them, probably the least uh, significant one that I came across, was uh, in Mark chapter three, verse thirty-one through thirty-four, and again in Matt twelve and Luke eight. There is this time where. Uh, Jesus his, it says his mother and his brethren came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting about him. And they said to him, your mother and your brethren are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brethren? And looking around on those who sat about him, he said, here are my mother and my brethren. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And in Luke, it's captured a li- little different where set sa- where Jesus says, my mother and my brethren are those who hear the word of God and do it. So, um, I, the first time I read this, I was like, oh dang, like, I wonder why he didn't like honor Mary as much, but he actually is, but he's using, um, that example of what she's already done in the past by her Magnificat when she says, uh, let it be done to me according to thy word, because what did she do? She, she did, uh, hear the word of God most profoundly, and then she did. Uh, she heard it and and accepted it and did it. She said, "Let it be done to me according to Thy word." And she received the word of God in Himself, Jesus. So here is a perfect example that we can take from Mary in order to be Jesus's brother, right or sister, to be perfectly united with Jesus, to be His disciples, um, and that is to say. Uh, Let it be done to me according to thy word. And then another argument is that in Luke chapter 2 verse 7 it says it calls Jesus the firstborn son. But that does not even uh, Protestant theologians. They you can't conclude that Mary had other children because it says the firstborn son. Because back in Exodus chapter thirteen, it says the Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast is mine. So you're supposed to give back the firstborn son. So it's just significant that he was the firstborn. That doesn't mean that there was more children afterwards. People that had one child, they still had their firstborn. And, uh, and also brothers. Okay. So the term brothers are used quite a bit in the scriptures in the new Testament, where it seems like that. Okay. That Jesus actually had uterine brothers. Um, however, We're going to see that both in Aramaic and in Greek, uh, the New Testament, the word used for brother was also commonly used to mean cousins, uncles, nephews, and other relatives. This probably stemmed uh, from the fact that neither Aramaic nor Hebrew has a specific word for cousin it became common to use brother or sister when speaking of cousins, which led to using the term for other family relations as well. So uh, and Abra- Abraham and Lot is as, as a classic example of this. So back in Genesis chapter 13, verse 8 and 14, 16, Abraham and Lot, though they were uncle and nephew by relation, they were call- they called one another brother. Okay, And it is not a surprise then that in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, and in the New Testament, even though there was a word for cousin in Greek, we find the exact same phenomenon where there's not a term for cousin. So in the Septuagint, we have multiple examples of this. So for example, in Leviticus chapter 10 verse 4, it uses a form of Adelphos, which means brother, to refer to the cousins of Moses and Aaron. In First Chronicles chapter 23 verse 22, the cousins of the daughters of Eliezer are called eldelphoi. And in Tobit chapter 7 verse 2 through 4, we have forms of both Anespios and eldelphos used in a not- is synonymous within two verses of each other. Then it says uh, then Ragul said to his wife Edna, how much the young man resembles my cousin Tobit. So he said to them, do you know our brother Tobit? So the New Testament also clearly uses el Delphois to refer generally to relatives just as as the Septuagint does. For example, John chapter 19 verse 25 refers to Jesus' mother's sister, Aldelphae, Mary, the wife of Clopas, being present at the foot of the cross along with Mary and Mary Magdalene. It is highly unlikely that there would have been two uterine sisters with the same, same name, Mary. This is uh, surely an example of some other kind of relation being called sister. And we see again in Matthew thirteen fifty five where it mentions the brother of the Lord, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. But in verse uh, verse twenty seven fifty six tells us who their mother was: Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. So, not the mother of the, of Jesus or the mother or mother of the Lord. Yet, the children of this Mary were are called brothers of the Lord. And then again, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 through 19, it says, Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia, and again, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Kephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So we notice that James, whom Paul calls a brother of the Lord, is an apostle. He just says that. Here, Paul is rewriting about an experience he had shortly after his conversion when he speaks of not going to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before him. So he is referring to James, the Lord's brother, as being one of the twelve apostles. But there were only two apostles named James among the twelve. The first was the son of Zebedee, but he could not be the James Paul speaks about in Galatians 1 because uh, in Acts chapter 12, he was martyred very early on. That leaves the other the other apostle James, and according to Luke chapter six verse fifteen to sixteen, his father's name was Elpheus, not Joseph. That means that the apostle James, whom Paul calls the Lord's brother, could not have been Jesus's uterine brother. And then we go on to uh, talking about until. So in Matthew one eighteen, it says. Uh, before they came together Mary was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit so it seems like that Mary uh, like Mary and Joseph did come did get come together because it says before they came together and then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, it says, Joseph knew her not until she had born a son. So it almost sounds like, okay, they did come together and had other children uh, and until she bore the son, Jesus. But this doesn't mean that something changes afterwards. And Joseph knew her to be the mother of God once she bore a son, which was Jesus. And we saw earlier that she was a spouse to the Holy Spirit and she is the Ark of the Covenant. She was this holy uh, fulfillment and Joseph was a righteous man and a devout Jew who would have known this and God revealed that to him in that dream um, with the angel and that she, she was going to bear the son from uh, the Holy Spirit and so she wouldn't he wouldn't have dared to have conjugal relations with her but still we're gonna see I'm gonna quote a few pieces of scripture here that that uses the word until but clearly it will not mean that there was something that was, that was a change after that instance happened so for example, 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 23, it says, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. So, does that mean that she did have children after she died? Clearly not. First Timothy, Timothy 4, Timothy 13, it says, Till I come, attending to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Does he mean once he gets there, to stop publicly reading Scripture, to preaching and teaching? Of course not. First Corinthians, First Corinthians, fifteen, twenty-five. For Christ must re, re, must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. So once He puts all His enemies under His feet, does that mean that Christ is going to stop reigning? Of course not. He's reigning forever. His kingdom has no end. Matthew twenty-eight through twenty. Lo, Jesus says, "Lo, I am with you always, to the end of the age." Does that mean that He is not going to be with us at the end of the age? Of course not. We're going to be caught up with Him in eternity, and he, He's going to be with us. 1 Timothy, Timothy 6.14, it says, I charge you to keep the commandments unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that once the Lord appears that we can just uh, not keep the commandments or stay free from reproach? Of course not. We got to keep them. And then another argument against her assumption, it says, uh, there's a lot of references back to John chapter 3, verse 13, where it says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. But this is a clear misunderstanding of what Catholic, the, the Catholic Church actually teaches what happened to Mary. Mary did not ascend into heaven. The, the word ascension means that on their own power. So Jesus, he ascended into heaven. Mary was assumed. She was utterly powerless. God by his grace and his power raised up Mary because of the merits of Jesus. And she was not the first person to be assumed into heaven. In Genesis 5:24 we read Enoch was assumed into heaven, and Elijah in 2 Kings 2:11, he was also assumed into heaven. And then there's references back to uh her being free from sin where there's three scripture verses mainly uh, referenced. Romans 3.23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in 1 John 1.8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And back in Romans 3.10, it says, none is righteous, no, not one. But in each three of those instances, it is not referring back to original sin. It's referring to personal sin. And there's a ton of exceptions to this, right? Because have... Uh, babies that have died in the womb or out out of the womb have they committed personal sin? Well of course not this is ref- there's a bunch of exceptions to this because there are human beings that were uh, conceived that um, did not personally sin and Jesus Christ himself he was fully man also but clearly, obviously we know he was without sin, right? So there are exceptions to this. And each of these scripture verses, just to remind us, are dealing with personal sin, where the Immaculate Conception is saying that Mary was free from original sin. She was completely detached from any sin, any stain of sin. She had no taste for sin in her life. She only wanted to do the will of God. And that was all because of the merits of her son, Jesus. Jesus Um, and what we, what I referenced earlier that I would also talk about is where Mary says that she needed a savior, right? I, my soul rejoices in God, my savior. And yep, there she is. She needed a savior. Well, Catholics agree. Well, absolutely. She needs a savior because she's a creature. She is not God. She is created by God. She needs a savior. But when did that saving act happen for her? For us, we are not saved until we're baptized, right? So, it's like we fell into this pool that we're about to drown in, and somebody comes pulls us out. Whereas Mary, she was before she even fell into the pool, God grabbed her. She never even fell into the pool in order to be saved like that. She was saved before she even entered into sin, entered into uh, the consequences of the original sin, right? And as we have seen in the past, when we go through Luke, and she is the new, she is presented as the new Eve in John and uh, and in Luke and as the Ark of the New Covenant, she was perfectly made, okay? So she is the fulfillment of the new Eve and she is the fulfillment of the Ark, which both were made without sin and incorruptible. And therefore she is incorruptible. So Mary was saved by the merits of her son, Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, she was saved. And that grace that happened at the cross, God is outside of time, right? So he can apply that saving grace or that power from the cross anywhere, right? So that power of the cross was applied to Mary at her conception. She was saved and redeemed by Jesus and preserved from God himself from sin. And then there's also an argument of her title as mediatrix. And mediatrix really just means that she has this intercessory role as a mediator in the salvific redemption by her son, Jesus Christ, and that he bestows grace through her. Um, But as we see throughout Scripture, especially in the Saint in the New Testament letters, us Christians are all called to be mediators. Because so in First Timothy two five it says, "One God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ." So that is usually the reference of like why do we people like pray for this to the saints or ask Mary for for prayers because we only have one mediator Jesus Christ. Well, absolutely because we needed we needed God to reconcile us because he is the eternal. We needed an eternal remedy which was found in Jesus Christ for us to be reconciled to to God and men. Because there's this void, right? Because of sin, we were disconnected from God. But in Jesus Christ, we have right relationship in God. So Jesus Christ is the one mediator in the sense that God himself took upon the weight of sin and death and redeemed humanity to reconcile to God, right? However, we see that Jesus, his entire will was to raise up human beings. He wanted to resurrect human beings in order to uh, to. Be in heaven with them, right? And and, and uh, Jesus even says himself that he is not that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus fulfills that because he is raising up uh, these um, people that are connected perfectly to God's will, and they're resurrected by the redemption of Jesus. And in Revelation, we see that they're praying to God. The prayers of the saints are lifted up in a bowl of incense to God. And we are the body of Christ. They we're not. And we don't ask uh, the saints to like grant us something as if they're God. No, it's always God granting that re- that request through the saints' intercession. Okay, so just like me and you, I I would ask. I ask people all the time, "Hey, pray for me." And then I ask people all the time, "Will you pray for me?" Well, what's who's more powerful to pray other than the people that are caught up perfectly with God, right? And those are the saints. And James uh, chapter five, I believe, verse sixteen, it says that a righteous man's prayers are, are that they affect much, right? So, who's more righteous than the people that are in perfect right relationship with God, other than the saints? And uh, the first, and so, and that first. Timothy 2 5 says, One God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Amen to that. Then, the first two verses of that chapter, it says, St. Paul actually commands intercessions, which is a synonym of mediation. So, he's calling all of us Christians to mediate for each other. In 1 Peter 2 5 through 9, it says, All Christians are priests. Priests, their very nature is to offer sacrifice, which was mediation. They would mediate between God and man. But we are all priests, right? So, anyways. We are all called to be uh, mediatrix. We're all supposed to mediate for each other. Okay, and then co-redemptrix. Her title is co-redemptrix, which means that she is like a co redeemer And that seems seems so blasphemous. Like, it, are we taking away from Jesus's redemption for us? Absolutely not. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved. But Jesus calls all of us to be little Christ Christians. The word Christian literally means little Christ, and we're called to be co laborers with Christ, according to First Corinthians three five through nine. Saint Paul says in Colossians uh, chapter one verse twenty four, "I complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ." Is he saying that there was something lacking in the and what Jesus did on the cross? Did he need to hang on the cross a little more? Should he have been scourged more? No it was perfect it's sufficient for the entire redemption of the entire world what is lacking in the sufferings of christ other than our participation in his redemptive suffering correct so who did who fulfilled that more than mary nobody because she was told that she, there was going to be a sign of contradiction of her son, and that us, uh, uh, that her soul would be pierced, and that is fulfilled at the cross when she is standing at the foot of the cross, watching her son be brutally murdered. Okay, and um, and then also. In Jude 22, verse, 20, uh, verse 22 through 23, it says, Convince some who doubt. Save some by snatching them out of the fire. So right here, we're as Christians, we're supposed to save some. We're supposed to be co-laborers, co-redeemers with Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.22 I have become all things to all men that I might be by all means save some. So Saint Paul wants to save people. We are caught up with Christ. We are seated in heavenly places with heavenly places with Jesus, and we're supposed to bring kingdom here, the kingdom of heaven here on earth to save people. We are co laborers with Jesus. Does that mean that I am I myself am saving people from like to bring them to eternal life? No, that's only by Jesus. But I'm supposed I'm called as a Christian to participate in that redemption. Of Jesus to bring more people into out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. First Timothy four sixteen it says, "Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Hold to that, by, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers." Again, we see that we're saving ourselves and other people because we're participating in Jesus. And then, um, and we also, and just like I mentioned earlier in Luke two thirty five, where Simeon prophesies that Jesus, that Mary, her own soul would be pierced. And that, why was that? Because she was so connected with Jesus. She was with him all the way from the beginning of his incarnation to the cross where hearts would be revealed. So Jesus and Mary together, together suffered so that the same, uh, many would be saved. And that's why we have our lady of sorrows. And just to recap all of this, Mary is perfectly united to the will of God, and it's only by her merits of her son, Jesus. She is in the body of Christ. She's the part of the church, but she's also the fulfillment of Israel, the virgin daughter of Zion, finally prepared perfectly in order to receive the word of God, which was fulfilled in Jesus himself. She is espoused by the Holy Spirit. She is the Ark of the New Covenant. She is the new Eve. She would suffer with her son. She was so humble that she didn't refrain from, from him being crucified. She'd wa- she was there every step of the way on Jesus' walk to Calvary. She was there at the foot of the cross, and she was the first one to ask Jesus for something. And then he started his ministry by per- first performing a miracle from turning water into wine. And in Revelation, we see that she is the woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, with the crown of 12 stars on her head, and she had child who was going to rule the nations. And, and then later on in Revelation, it says that her offspring were those who keep the commandments of God and bear testimony to Jesus. All Christians, you have a mother, and it's Mary. And her body and soul were assumed into heaven because she is perfectly united with her son, Jesus. She is without sin and she is incorruptible. And where the ark is and where, the, where God is, there is the ark as well. And we see right there that her body and soul were assumed into heaven. And so why does all this matter? Because Mary, just as we just said, her life was the perfect example of a Christian disciple to be so abandoned to the will of God like she was. She is the fulfillment of what we have our hope in. She is perfect, undefiled, and our bodies resurrected. So why do we say as like Catholics still like our life, our sweetness, and our hope when we talk about Mary? O Clement, O Sweet Virgin Mary. We have all these titles for her. Well, Jesus is our hope because he is the one that's redeeming us, but she is our hope in the sense that what Jesus is gonna do for us at the sec- time of the second coming has already been displayed in Mary's life perfectly united to jesus and she is the fulfillment of israel the perfect image of the church and the perfect image of each of us because jesus will come and resurrect our bodies and unite them with our souls so i pray that this series on mary was extremely fruitful for everybody and that you can see the profound biblical foundations for the doctrines and dogmas of mary and why we honor her because god honors her and as we have seen this is all by the merits of her son, Jesus. Everything that we believe as uh, about Mary is because it's Christocentric. It's all about Jesus. If you do not get Mary right, then you do not get the fullness of Jesus right. And actually, you could also be going into a heretical territory, as we have seen in history, like the Arian and historian his, uh, heresies in history. You're either attacking Jesus's divinity or just his very nature and the truth of Jesus's revelation, or you're attacking um, and separating Jesus Jesus and the two persons Um, and that is just one example but If you get Mary right, then you understand the fullness of Jesus. And this is all from the merits of the divine revelation fulfilled in Jesus Christ and also found profoundly in Scripture. So the next episode I'm going to actually talk about, I'll do one more episode. I'm going to talk about apparitions. So apparitions are like Mary appearing throughout the case, uh, throughout history. The past 2,000 years, Mary has appeared probably millions of times. And I'll talk about some of the really large apparitions and the miracles that have happened. And I'll also talk, and those are, these apparitions are really just a continuation of that first miracle that happened from Mary's intercession at the wedding of Cana in in the Gospel of John. Jesus performs a miracle because of Mary's intercession. And that's the same thing now. It's not Mary performing miracles, it's God performing miracles through Uh, Mary's intercession. And I'm also going to talk about my personal testimony relationship with Mary. It's so profound. I can't wait to talk about it. It has been absolutely life-changing and I know her son profoundly more and closer and more intimate with Jesus because I understand the fullness of revelation in Jesus fulfilled really in Mary's human life and um, and I pray that all Christians come to know the fullness of truth of Mary because it gets you closer to Jesus. She will only ever tell you, do whatever he says, exactly what she said to the people at the wedding of Cana, do whatever he tells you and that is all she will ever do is bring you closer to her son Jesus and then honoring Mary gives glory to God. It's to the redemptive power of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and Mary's Lord and Savior. And Mary is the perfect reflection and actualization of what our hope is to be as Christians, resurrected, redeemed by Jesus Christ. So just like St. Maximin Colby said, he said that never be afraid of loving Mary too much. You can never love her more than Jesus did. And that is so true. And Jesus, just ask him, reveal the truth to me. And he's going to tell you, my beloved disciple, behold your mother, as he's on the cross. And then, uh, just like the angel, like the angel revealed to Joseph, he's going. To, God wants to tell us, do not be afraid to take Mary into your home. So God bless you all. and I'm praying for you.